Hello everyone, my name is Ryan and you're listening to The Vegan Report. If you're vegan for the animals and you care to do more for animal rights, but you're not sure where to start, then this podcast is for you. Every week, let yourself fall in love with passionate animal rights leaders who will inspire you to find your voice, your own special contribution to the animal rights movement, however small or big it is. Today we are going to talk about slaughterhouses. Usually you can easily trace back the origins of the food in your supermarket. This could be said about legumes or fruits, but what about animal products? The truth is, most people don't know what happens inside a slaughterhouse. I bet most of you, just like me, never visited one. And it's no surprise those factories are located in remote places. They don't have any windows, and the rules about who gets in are very strict. Most of what we know about slaughterhouses comes from the work of activists who take undercover footage of the inside. Today, I want to offer you a conversation with someone who has worked for a slaughterhouse, but also for farms and ranches. His name is Colin, and he generously accepted to share what he witnessed from working for the animal industry. Colin grew up in a family-owned ranch of about 50 heads of cattle. He actively worked to take care of the ranch during his youth. Later, he got an undergraduate degree in animal sciences from Colorado State University. While there, he focused on beef systems, taking classes with the famous lecturer Temple Grindon, in addition to meat sciences, carcass analysis, humane animal handling classes, and more. While in college, he visited various slaughterhouses, dairy factories, small ranches, and got a good look at the inner workings of those facilities. This landed him a job working for a large animal's vet, who specialized in artificial insemination, and a certain experience at that job made him embrace ethical veganism, and during the conversation he openly talks about that experience. Shortly after, he did the Master in Microbiology and is now employed by the health sector. Hi, Colin. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I wanted to start by asking you, what is exactly the difference between a ranch, a farm, a slaughterhouse? What do we mean by uh, animal factories? Uh, What is this whole animal industry about? Yeah, um... That's a great question. It's uh, I think a lot of people get very confused on uh, what the difference is between even like a farm or ranch or uh, what a the finishing phase with a lot of animals like a feedlot. Um, and if you're not familiar with the industry, you're probably going to think they're all on all in one facility. And there is some overlap with a lot of them. Um, farming tends to be a lot more just kind of uh, plant agriculture based. They don't really tend to deal with a lot of livestock. Um, that's not to say that they don't, they may certainly have their, you know, their backyard chickens or a few sheep or a few goats, whatever here and there. Uh, but they tend to focus more on crops. Um, and they don't tend to focus on one specific thing generally. Whereas a ranch majority of ranches tend to have one primary focus. Um, and again, that isn't to say that you won't have somebody who has, you know, 
X amount of cattle and they don't have a few chickens, they might have some chickens as well. But primarily their focus is going to be one animal um, and they're going to stick to that and they don't really rotate. They don't really change things up. And then within that, um, you know, you'll have certain things like feedlots, uh, which is, this is not necessarily the same that goes on throughout the whole world. Um, the finishing phase with, uh, at least with cattle, is uh, it's a very, very, I think, North American thing. You know, it's, this happens a lot in Canada too. Um, but a feedlot will be something that you send your cow to towards the finishing stages of its production cycle. And you typically will feed it like a high grain diet. Um, this has a lot of purposes. It'll be used to convert um, like a yellow fat to a, a white marbled fat, which is a little bit more, which appeals more to like the North American palate. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you'll, you'll, you'll notice a lot of, for instance, Europeans when they come over to uh, the United States, they'll note that the meat tastes significantly different. Um, same thing when Americans go to Australia, Europe, Asia, the meat, they'll describe the meat as having a gamey taste. Mm -hmm. um, and that's because oftentimes the animals in those countries aren't fed a high grain diet at the very end of their life cycle. Um, so that's kind of what a feedlot will do. And then a slaughterhouse is going to be a lot more where you um, actually process the animal. It's where you actually stun it, kill it, open it up. Um, that's where you'll have your carcass evaluations. That's a very, very common thing is you'll have somebody actually evaluate the carcass. They'll grade the meat. Um, they'll determine if it is acceptable for human consumption, you know, and then oftentimes from there, they'll use that as a basis for compensation to the producer. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the carcass evaluation specifically is a very, very, uh, key factor for that. So, um, yeah. So farms in terms of business model grow crops. This is the main economical yeah. activity and then yeah. ranches um they have the livestock and the slaughterhouse is at the end of the whole process when the animal is slaughtered um and the farms you know most of the crops go to uh the farm animals uh to feeding farm animals uh i think that 90 percent of all uh, our agriculture is um, food for livestock and only 10% or something like that uh, goes to uh, human consumption. Um, ha have you uh, noticed that? Have you uh, observed that? Yeah, um, actually, that's very, very true. Um, I've heard a lot of people, for instance, um, it's one of the main arguments I've heard a lot of people say against veganism is they'll say something along the lines of, well, you know, the majority of the Amazon rainforest is being um, destroyed to grow soy. Mm -hmm. And it says, yeah, that's true, but the majority of that soy is going to feed livestock. Um, and, you know, and, and that's, that's one of those, you know, reoccurring arguments I've always heard against, like, the, the vegan diet is a lot of people will say, well, you know, we use uh, a lot of soy and, and you can't, you know, convert, you, you know, you can't convert certain land to feed animal, you know, for crops to feed people. You need meat to use that land. It says, well, yeah, but we managed to still 
feed 80 billion livestock throughout the world a year. Um, and we do do that through crops. So we certainly grow enough food to feed everyone if we're able to feed a, a lot of the livestock because we're, when you think about a cow, you know, a cow will weigh, the average human probably weighs 150 pounds, you know, 75 kilograms, whereas you'll have a cow that they weigh anywhere between 800 to 1,200 pounds. I mean, they're, they're oftentimes, you know, eight, nine, tenths the size of a human. Mm. That is a lot of food they got to eat. Yes. Um, yeah. And they're eating all crops. So a lot of food and a lot of water too. Y yes. Water. Um, and there's also a lot of, uh, water runoff as a result. A lot of, uh, fecal material ends up getting washed into the water system. Um, gets drained in the lakes, rivers, streams. Um, and then, yeah, just the animals themselves have to consume a lot of water. Um, yeah, that's a big environmental impact. Oh, ab it's absolutely massive. Um, when you actually look at some of the drought problems we have here, um, you'll notice that, for instance, like the Colorado River out west, it's going completely empty some years. If you look at um, the Hoover Dam these years, you know, it used to be filled all the way to the top. Now it's filled very, very low because water levels are getting low. And now you have to supply water not only to people and supply their homes, but you also have to keep the livestock going. Because if you can't give water to your livestock, you then need to call the entire, you know, population. So, hmm. um, yeah, water consumption is an extremely large factor that is a huge contributor to what goes into animal agriculture. Um, it's very surprising, especially if you, if you end up looking at what it takes to produce a gallon of milk versus a gallon of, you know, a milk alternative, even the, the crops like almonds, which also use a large amount of water as in regards to milk alternatives, it's still very much lower than a regular standard gallon of cow's milk. So mm. going back to, uh, all of those facilities, um, I've been in, I've visited plenty of farms. And I think most people have visited farms, uh, but I never visited a ranch. So what is it like to visit a ranch? My only reference is that uh, TV series called uh, Yellowstone. Uh, so how is it like to you know visit a ranch? Um, I actually really like ranches. Uh, for me, they're, they're quite a bit of fun. Um, there are a lot of ranches that, at least what I tend to work with or what I used to work with, there are smaller facilities. Um, you know, typically they'll have maybe a hundred head of cattle. They're typically family owned and operated. Um, for the most part, they may have some outside help. And, uh, that is a big chunk of my childhood. So it, whenever I go see a ranch, it, you know, it always brings me back to the days when I was running around and the field and hanging out with the dogs and, uh, getting chased by, you know, cows when I was running through on a three wheeler. Um, but I think uh, that's not the only type of situation you run into. Um, there are a lot of very, very industrial, large ranches that are very business operated. They're very, 
I wouldn't say structured, but yes, they're a little bit more organized and structured and it is a business model and it doesn't have that same, you know, you, you alluded to, uh, that show Yellowstone. I haven't seen that. Um, but a lot of ranches are very much like that. I, I presume, um, I, I think it has that like family owned and operated type, small cowboy yeehaw type yes, thing exactly. going on. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, and so that there is certainly, um, a lot of that, um, but there are also a lot of places that are, um, you know, it's a regular nine to five job, um, you know, and from an outward appearance, you probably wouldn't see, you wouldn't look at it and see, um, anything that's bothersome. Um, but when you start getting into the nitty gritty of it, uh, you do even, even on smaller operations, you do start seeing things that are a little bothersome. Um, especially once you're familiar with it. And it's, it's kind of interesting when you talk with ranchers and you work with them, they, um, to them, it's just, you know, it's just a typical Saturday and you're sitting there like, well, do we really need to do this to the cow or to the sheep or <laughs> to anything else? Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, it's, I, I always have mixed feelings about ranches. You know, like I said, it's, it's, um, something that brings me back to my childhood. It's something I'm used to, but being on the vegan side of things, I also have to look at them and it's kind of, you know, like going to a, just a, a place of cruelty. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a very strange feeling, I guess, for me. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And what about, uh, the most inaccessible place? slaughterhouses um what is it like to enter in one of those facilities what is the is it is it enormous is it obscure is it how just describe it for me those are um they're very they are very very large um it is a uh it is a factory type setting um it has a very certain distinct odor. Obviously, um, you know, it will smell like blood. It will smell like very unwelcoming smell. Mm. Um, and you do notice as the animals going through the process, I mean, it, it, to me, it's almost like something out of a horror film. Um, if you go down the entire line from start to finish from when the animal is slaughtered and then they, you know, will get hung up on hooks and then, you know, just, as if it is, I mean, it's just a job for the people working, but it's very interesting to see somebody in like, you know, um, coveralls and then they, you know, cut open the animal and they gut it and then it goes down the line and then you have a machine that like degloves, uh, it rips the skin off and then, you know, it's just, it's just going down the line and then you'll see a large line of workers with um, essentially table saws and they're cutting pieces off length and, and preparing it. Um, and I don't know if you've, uh, how much news you've followed, um, within the industry, but you'll see that there, um, you'll see that there's a lot of, uh, it's very clear that there's a lot of migrant workers. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, you, you know, you don't ask a million questions, but you do know that there's, a lot of bad employment practices going on. Um, I'm not sure 
if you notice, there was a story very, very recently where a cleaning facility and, and Tyson Foods and I think JBS as well got in a lot of trouble for having underage cleaners in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. This is a large facility in uh, Nebraska. And, you know, again, you don't ask these types of questions, but you kind of, when you look at people working, you can kind of see that that's um, what's going on. So it, it, to me personally, it feels a little bit like what you would see in a horror movie. Mm. Um, it's, it's got a very dark, uh, the lighting's not very good, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, it's, not, it's not a bright, sunny place, that's for sure. Mm. Um, it's definitely something that reminds me of a horror film. And uh, what you mentioned about the workers, um, that's an area where uh, you have vegan activists, animal rights activists, and um, social justice activists. And there's this intersection between the two because um, I've seen organizations like Oxfam uh, who who will advocate for the rights of those uh, workers, you know, working in those uh, slaughterhouses. Um, because of the bad working conditions. And you mentioned Tyson. That's one of the worst. <laughs> I guess there are yeah. not a lot of players in that industry. No, there's there's a lot of very, um, you know, there's I think maybe like five really big companies. Um, and it, it changes from time to time. Um, JBS, I think, is the largest right now. Um, and when they entered the U.S. market, they went and bought like the third and fourth largest um and then they essentially just shot up to the largest producer here in the united states Mm -hmm. um but yeah tyson's a really big one cargill is a huge one um those i would say are probably like the three major ones and they're constantly in trouble for something um i guess it doesn't really matter if you know you just pay the fine that comes your way and then just keep doing what you're doing Mm -hmm. So now I want to talk about the different animal species and how they are exploited um, in in this industry. Uh, basically, I want to know what they go through uh, inside those farms and then uh, um, or ranches, and of course slaughterhouses. And uh, I have prepared some no- notes uh, with some informations you know, to give listeners on every one of those animal species because most people don't interact with uh, living uh, farm animals. You are one exception. <laughs> uh, but, you know, they live far away from rural areas of, or they have no interest for interacting with farm animals. And so people have many misconceptions about uh, farm animals and there are even plenty of people who don't consider uh, farm animals to uh, even be sentient. So let's start maybe with cows. And I have this article, I'm looking at my notes uh, from World Animal Protection. And they say, you know, cattle are naturally uh, curious, clever, and even uh, fun-loving. In research In research studies, they have been trained to follow sound, to find food in a maze, They are also known to love playing. You mentioned how you played with uh, cows in uh, your ranch. Um, When given the space, they will run with each other, play chase, and enjoy toying with the ball. Um, They also say, let's see, 
Um, cows have different personalities. Some cows are bolder and more exploratory than others. They are more likely to explore a new object in their field compared with others who might be shy and less curious. Cows can make friends. Uh, they can form social bonds with other cows and feel uh, stressed when separated from their preferred partners. Um, there are, uh, cows ho have also vo uh, different vocalizations. Um, which differ, you know, um, according to their emotional state. So when feeling uh, negative emotions, a, co a cow vocalizations are longer and higher pitch. When cows feel uh, more positive, they vocalize less and their vocalizations are shorter with a lower pitch. Um, cows have a pain face, uh, which means that they're Microfacial expressions can show uh, when they are in pain. These expressions can be reliably assessed to determine how much pain a cow is in following, let's say, a procedure. Um, they have also developed softwares that um, can track the facial expressions of cows to determine what uh, emotions they are feeling, including aggressive, neutral, calm, and excited. So this is a very complex uh, being. Would you like to add something or a comment on one of the points that um, I read? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, just the whole thing in general, um, you know, they, they are incredibly curious animals. They're um, much more intelligent than I think people give credit for. And, and you were talking about them playing, you know, they play with balls, they will roam. Um, they remind me very much of a dog. Mm. Um, you know, they, they're just as friendly, just as playful. Um, and I had a, I had a cow, uh, in when I was a, when I was younger, we had this cow, Sally. Um, and she was, you know, like a dog. She really was, you know, you, you always have this, um, generalization with dogs that when you come home, they're all excited to see you. They're wagging their tail. And that was Sally. I would come home from school and she would run right up to the fence and she was happy. And, you know, Perhaps she just thought I was going to give her, you know, a treat or pat her on the head or something. But um, they are incredibly curious and very aware animals. Um, they're not, you know, they're not stupid mm -hmm. by any means. Um, and you can tell when they're when they're stressed. You can tell when they're worried. They have looks on their face. Um, you know, same things when they're curious. If you're going somewhere and you're investigating they'll they'll all follow you and they'll they'll give you a nice little stare and kind of you know try and figure out what you're doing so um pretty much your your description that you just read off of your notes is is very on point i was not totally familiar with uh the i'm not surprised by it um i think i'd heard that somewhere else but the unique vocalizations mm -hmm. um that was actually something i had not really either maybe i just never paid attention or <laughs> But um, I'm not surprised. And they, they do form special bonds. You do see certain ones hanging out with each other each day. When one of them goes missing, you can tell they're missing their friend. Um, they're very social creatures. Um, I, I have a very special place in my heart for cows because they, you know, they are like dogs to me. And it, it's weird because, you know, we use words like uh, vocalizations. But it's a voice. I mean, they have different voices and they're using them and uh, anyway um so what is 
uh, the fate of cows uh, in the animal industry? Ultimately, um, it is slaughter, period. Um, it doesn't matter if it's a dairy cow or a beef cow. The way that they end up getting there might be a little bit different. Mm -hmm. um, but ultimately, that is the same thing. Um, this is one of those things that I think a lot of people, there's a lot of misconceptions about this, particularly with uh, dairy cows mm -hmm. that people don't seem to understand. Um, but dairy cows do end up getting slaughtered as well for meat. Um, and what ends up happening is a, they will get sent to slaughter under two conditions. One, if they're male, um, and I'll get more into that later, but, uh, female cows, um, the primary goal with them when they are in your herd is to breed them. You need them to breed. If they don't breed, they're useless. Essentially it's one more mouth to feed. Um, so with a beef operation, you know, that's the primary goal. You may make an exception, you know, the first year, if a, if a first year heifer, uh, heifer being uh, a young cow, essentially that hasn't been bred before. If they don't get bred on the first try, you may give them a chance. Um, if they've been a cow that has bred, you know, four years in a row and then for whatever reason, you know, a year they don't get pregnant, you might give them a second chance. Mm -hmm. But generally, once they've hit, you know, over four or five years old, or if they have two years in a row that they don't breed, you send them to slaughter. Because you are, you know, one of the, the largest, at the end, of, it, it is a business. Mm -hmm. And the largest cost for a producer is food. Mm -hmm. If you're not producing another cow, you're feeding another cow, that's eating into your bottom line, you're making less money, so you do need to send them to slaughter. And it's the same thing with dairy cows. Um, I think a lot of people think that dairy cows just make milk, like magically, there's no process involved. Um, but just like all mammals, in order for them to produce milk, they do need to get pregnant. Mm -hmm. um, there's a hormone that um, some people might be familiar with as like the mothering hormone called oxytocin. Mm -hmm. um, but oxytocin is also a uh, smooth muscle relaxer for um, the mammary glands, and it's responsible for milk letdown um, with pregnancy. If they don't get pregnant, they don't produce milk. They don't produce milk. Are they useful to a dairy farmer? Probably not. Um, so no matter what, once they've outlived their usefulness, they get sent to slaughter. Um, now it's going to be, you might have a few differences with between operations of the longevity and, the, and how they actually get there. But for a beef cow, typically they'll be, born um, and the male cows the first year uh, well they don't they typically get sent to slaughter once they reach a certain weight but they're always generally castrated um, you don't want them breeding with your cows you typically will use artificial insemination and then you'll keep a couple bulls on site um, to kind of clean up because artificial insemination is only about 65 percent maybe 70% effective. Mm -hmm. um, so these cleanup bulls will, you know, finish off the others that don't get pregnant. So those males that do get castrated, they essentially get sent to slaughter as soon as 
you know, it's, it's good for the market. You can get the best money for it. Winter comes, you know, enough grass on the field. You have to supplement feed. You're going to get rid of them. Um, again, one less mouth to feed. The female cows, you will attempt to continuously breed them throughout the cycle, throughout the years, until they stop producing. Um, once the cow is ready to go, they will get sent to the feedlots, um, and they'll stay there on a really high-grain diet. Um, as I mentioned, this is kind of the finishing phase, uh, you know, to convert the fat mm-hmm. in the animal. Um, you can only do that for a certain amount of time. One, grain costs money. Two, um, if you keep them on a high-grain diet for too long, they can actually get ruptures in their rumen of their stomach. Um, and that can lead to liver problems, um, ketoacidosis, just a number of diseases. So you keep them on this high-grain diet for a few months, um, you know, maybe up to six months. It, it depends. Um, and then based on the market demands, um, you'll send them to a slaughterhouse. Um, the slaughterhouse and the packaging house, um, that is kind of the bottleneck in the industry. They kind of control all the prices, essentially. So your choice of when to send an animal to slaughter is going to be based very, very much on what they are deciding. What, what, because they're controlling the price, they're controlling supply and demand. So you're going to always try and get the best, um, most amount of money for your cow. So that's going to drive the thing. So dairy cows are kind of essentially the same thing. Once they stop producing milk, they go through the same process. So they can go to a feedlot. I believe it's less than maybe 5 or 10% of cows that are grass-fed. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that's a big marketing thing. Um, and those are cows that are generally not sent to a feedlot. <clears throat> um, that's why they'll tend to have a little bit more of like a it's described as a gamey taste, you know, like dim, like beer or the type of meat that you would get in Europe or Australia or New Zealand. Um, doesn't have the same flavor, um, but that's why they're grass fed. And that's just a very small portion. Mm-hmm. So. And um, the cows that are producing milk, um, first of all, um, all of that uh, breeding process, this must be very taxing on their bodies. Um, have you seen, um, those, you know, what are the conditions, their health conditions after all of that, uh, process of, uh, continuously getting, uh, uh, impregnated? Um, it certainly takes a toll on them, but I don't think that it really produces, um, particularly long-term health conditions, not because it's not bad for them, but the average lifespan of these cows is maybe four or five years. Um, I think if you were to continuously try and breed them for, you know, 10, 15 years, you would start to see some very serious health issues. Um, but because they do end up having a shorter lifespan, I just don't think that that um, really develops to the point of, of making them have very serious or at least noticeable health benefits mm-hmm. uh, or uh, health problems. Yeah. Um, yeah, they, they, they certainly do. Um, I'm sure they get, you know, ruptures in their pelvic cavity. Mm. Um, you know, 
you can have complications, but I think a lot of those complications are um, mitigated by breeding practices. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> I know there used to be a lot of issues with uh, dystocia, which is essentially the fetus is, or is either too large or it's um, in an awkward position. This has been kind of, and that, that would cause a lot of health problems, a lot of excess bleeding, a lot of um, damage just to the cow. The reason for that was that in years past, the industry was very, or at least producers were very, very focused on having a very high birthing weight. Mm -hmm. The thought process being if you have a high birthing weight, um, then they will get up to a higher weight by the time you send them to slaughter. Mm -hmm. But what they were finding is that they would have to, they would have these really, really large cows calves growing in the bellies of their moms and then when it came time to um, give birth they're having dystocia and they couldn't actually push them through the canals you would have to get uh, a worker a rancher to go out there in the middle of a night on a cold February and help the cow at, like actually get pulled um, get pulled a calf from the cow um, so what they started doing is they've started focusing their breeding goals on having lower body weights um, for the calves in order to prevent these issues with dystocia. Mm -hmm. um, so, like I said, there are certainly health issues. Um, a lot of those have been mitigated by breeding for smaller birthing weights. Um, but... Yeah, I'm sure those issues would continue if you kept breeding them. And what about the milk? The milk is supposed to go to the baby. And we're taking the milk. How does that happen? Okay. I guess the baby is separated from the mother. And yep. then what happens to the baby? Does the mother uh, react to that separation? Um, could you tell us about that? The mothers are extremely upset. Um you will see them following the vehicle. Like if you put the calf into a car or into the back of a truck, you will, you'll see the mothers chase after it. Um, they will, they will cry out for their child. Um, they are extremely upset. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you were talking earlier about them having them bonding and them having, uh, you know, just these emotions, mm -hmm. um, it's, it's actually really quite heartbreaking to see that. Um, and, you know, I'm sure if you monitored those cows for a long time, you would see a lot of, a lot of really just, <clears throat> sorry, uh, you would see a lot of really just upset cows, mm -hmm. um, isolated, not social, you know, because they've had their child taken from them mm -hmm. and the calves, um, you know, perhaps they're young, they're not quite as aware, but you can tell they're also missing something if you ever go to if you ever go to one of the areas where they keep the calves after they're separated from the mother they keep them chained up and in these kind of um they almost look like dog dog houses mm -hmm. um they're these essentially just these little pins and um i wish i had sent you some pictures before we actually started this meeting i have some pictures of little calves you know they're sucking on my fingers mm -hmm. um they they want their mother's teat so that they can feed you know you can tell that they're they're very upset about it um i think you're at and i don't think people this is another one of the downsides with the um 
dairy industry that I think a lot of people are just completely unaware of. This is why veal exists. Um, when you take the calf from its mom, you have to do something with that calf. Mm-hmm. Um, you send it for veal. You slaughter it at a very young age. What is veal? Veal, veal is uh, essentially baby calf, baby calf. It's a very, very tender meat. Uh, yes. Uh, um, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Pe- people, some people love it, um, but it is a byproduct of the dairy industry. Because um, mm. you, you have to get rid of those calves somehow. You can't have them, if you can't let them feed on their mother's milk, then you got to do something. They're not so. going to survive anyway. Not likely. I mean, you you could essentially give them something supplemental. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of the, um, I'm going to call them immunoglobulins, a lot of the immune, a lot of the things that you get for your immune system, mm-hmm. you get as a baby from your mother. Mm-hmm. Um, these cows are being deprived of that, so they are much more susceptible to diseases. You could You could theoretically give them, you know, something to supplement that, but it's still not going to be as good. You're still going to have health issues. Um, yeah, they're, they're likely to not survive. Or if they do survive, they're not going to be very healthy. Did you, did you have anything more to say about cows? <laughs> no. <laughs> I, uh, I went very long to cows. As you can tell, I like cows a lot. Well, then let's go to uh, chickens, which I think is one of the most common, uh, you know, farm animal. Um, uh, Again, an article from World Animal Protection. Chickens can recognize up to 100 faces. Uh, Chickens uh, dream, similar to dogs and cats, who may act like they're chasing something while asleep. Chickens also have uh, vivid dreams. Uh, Chickens uh, pass down information. Um, so chickens pass down knowledge from generation to generation if given the chance. Um, this one is really heartwarming. Uh, chickens chirp to their eggs. Uh, and uh, you'll either, either, even <laughs> hear um, um, the, uh, the babies uh, chirp back. Um, and they also... Uh, make around 30 different calls to communicate with each other, expressing everything from uh, thanks for the food to there is a predator in the coop. Um, Also, chickens have great memory. They can solve puzzles by picking uh, uh, the pieces with their beaks uh, to let their human helpers know which one goes where. So there were uh, experiments uh, made around that. Another one, which is cute, uh, chickens purr, like uh, they will purr like cats. And I know, uh, you know, those facts surprise people because I think um, chickens have this uh, image of being very stupid creatures. Um, But yet, if you kept a chicken in your uh, backyard or something like that, um, every one of those... Uh, facts about chickens, uh, you would find them to be uh, true. Um, so what kind of treatment chickens experience uh, in the animal industry? Chickens, I think sometimes, um, and again, this isn't, chickens aren't something that I've worked a lot with, but mm-hmm. um, chickens oftentimes are in very, very large scale 
operations. Um, and I don't know if you ever heard about, um, oftentimes chickens are, they have their beaks removed. No. Um, yeah, because they, they will kind of go crazy because they're in these very tight, cramped facilities. Um, and they will essentially go mentally insane and start attacking one another. So they preemptively will remove a lot of their beaks in many cases. Um, they are put into just these really tight, confined areas. They're not really allowed to move around. Um, you know, I've, I've heard frequently of chickens being bred to be so large that they literally physically cannot walk. Um, because again, this industry is driven by money. So you're trying to get the most meat off of the animal as you can. Um, you know, and, and chickens are just, I think probably in just some of the, some of the worst conditions. And even, you know, there's a lot of marketing terms like free range, Mm. which, um, I had a, I, I was very unaware of this at the time because I hadn't had a lot of experience with chickens, but I remember talking with a professor of mine in college. Um, and I'm, he, he, he was one of the main professors. He read, ran one of my livestock courses. And he basically said, you know, the term free range, like you do know that this is kind of essentially just BS. Um, you know, it, all that essentially means is that you can just open a door and if you leave the food inside, um, the chicken's not going outside. Um, but that's all free range really essentially means. It's kind of a misnomer to sell more food. Um, yeah, I, I'm always amazed at just how kind of bottom of the totem pole chickens are treated. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's really, it's kind of interesting when you think about like how far we've come with them. Uh, on a genetic basis, you know, chickens aren't meant to have an egg every single day. Mm. They're meant to produce maybe, you know, 15 to 20 a year, you know, one or two a month. Um, and we've just created these absolute genetic monsters <laughs> um, that are so incredibly unhealthy. I'm sure they feel absolutely disgusting and they're kept in very very hot just disgusting rodent infested you know feces filled facilities um yeah (laughs) yeah and um every activity involving you know um chickens i mentioned um getting chickens in your backyard. Don't do that, okay? <laughs> this is something, you know, in rural cities, you, you will find that. Even in big cities, you find people who will keep chickens in their backyard. And it's a horrible, horrible uh, activity, you know, because, um, uh, first of all, there are a lot of farmers who will sell you a rooster instead of a chicken. And uh, you won't notice uh, until the last minute, and then you have to get rid of those roosters, uh, because uh, in many cities it is forbidden to have roosters. They do a lot of um, noise pollution, and then um, they stop producing egg, 
and people want to get rid of them after maybe a year or two um, because why would I keep a chicken in my backyard if the chicken is not giving egg and um, and farmers will not take them uh, always take them uh, because uh, there are some rules concerning you know sicknesses and stuff um, not um, to have you know to have a contamination from an outside um, chicken. And um, it's, it's just a big, big mess. Um, and I don't understand why it is allowed. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's, um, you know, speaking on what you're, what you're talking about with roosters, um, you know, roosters are extremely, they can be extremely aggressive. Their meat isn't particularly tasty, so you don't really want to slaughter them for food. Mm -hmm. um, so, and as a result of that, even if you're getting, you know, your backyard chickens, you think, oh, it's, it's cruelty free. It's cute. It's, you know, they're running around and they're maybe eating the bugs and keeping the garden clean and everything. Um, and yeah, that might be the case with the chickens, but you know, about 50% of what they give birth to is a rooster. Mm -hmm. Um, so as a result of that, uh, I, I think a lot of people are unaware that, when people, when chickens are getting sexed, when they're born, somebody looks at them, um, and and you know pulls some feathers aside. They have very very good eyes for this, but they detect which ones are the males, and they throw them into a wood chipper. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the male chickens are just shredded to pieces from day one. Um, and I don't think people realize that that's that's 50% of the chicken population. So even if you're going with the backyard chicken thing, you're still killing a lot of chickens. Hmm. Um, from the get-go, yes. From, from from the start, before you even purchase that chicken. For every one you know, chicken you've purchased, another one has already died. Hmm. So And no, I yes. I think, you know, even then, um, we've, we've had a lot of issues with, uh, disease outbreaks. Um, I do definitely foresee the. I wouldn't be surprised if one of these days there's a city that does allow backyard chickens that mm. says that we need to, you know, everybody who has a chicken, you need to call them because we have a huge avian influenza outbreak. Um, you know, a lot of these larger chicken facilities are, you know, huge, you know, areas where these diseases can proliferate. And that will absolutely spread into these neighborhood backyard chickens. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I've, I've heard some instances of avian influenza jumping from poultry to humans. Mm -hmm. um, I think as time goes on, we're going to see more and more cases of that. Um, and we're going to see a lot of instances where that happens, where people do have backyard chickens. Um, I think it's going to be a huge, huge thing. So. Huge problem, yes. And then, of course, they, they will have to get rid of them, uh, mm -hmm. not in the most human way, if there is such no. a... <laughs> no, I've, uh, they, they burn them alive. They drown them in foam. Oh. Um, they do all sorts of just... Because you have to kill, you know, countless numbers of chickens... So they do it in the most economically feasible way possible, you know, and that's often by flooding. I, I, I think the most common 
way to do a mass calling is they will flood it with the with foam that firefighters use. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine that's um, that can't be very enjoyable for the chickens. I'm sure, of but <laughs> yeah, it happens. Um, so let's go to now pigs, um, which is maybe the the most um, an interesting case. And uh, every time, you know, people talk about um, veg- being vegetarian or vegan, uh, they will often say, "But bacon, bacon, bacon is so good." Mm-hmm. Um, so again, this is from World Animal Protection. Uh, pigs are very clean animals. And this goes against popular wisdom. In fact, they're some of the cleanest animals around and refuse to defecate uh, where they sleep and eat if given the choice. Even newborn piglets will leave uh, their sleeping areas uh, to relieve themselves. Um, That is a very surprising fact. Um, Even puppies don't go that far. I mean, you have to train uh, your dog to go out and uh, do uh, its business. Um, pigs can sweat. You know, sweating like a pig is another misleading and commonly used phrase uh, since um, pigs can't uh, really sweat because they don't have many sweat glands. So they roll around and sleep in mud and swim and swim in water to keep cool. Um, and a, a bonus to rolling in mud, it helps uh Uh, keep a pig's skin from getting uh, sunburned because a pig's skin uh, is very sensitive. Um, Pigs are smarter than your dog. Uh, Pigs have the intelligence of a human toddler and are ranked as the fifth most intelligent animal in the world. In fact, pigs are more intelligent uh, and trainable than any breed of dog. Uh, They learn their names uh, in just two weeks and come when they're called Uh, Pigs even uh, are capable of playing video games uh, better than some primates. Uh, Mother pigs sing to their babies. Uh, This is one of the sweetest facts about pigs. Mother pigs sing to the babies while nursing. Uh, Pigs have an excellent sense of direction. Uh, They're good navigators. They can find their way home over large distances. They can often trot. Uh, long distances and can reach up to 11 miles per hour uh, running. Uh, pigs dreams and like to sleep nose to nose. You know, pigs love to stay connected with each other uh, by sleeping close to uh, together, often making sure to touch their friends while they drift off. And um, pigs also have excellent memories. Um especially when it comes to object location. If they find uh, a great spot, uh, they'll remember to look at uh, the great spot again, um, um, even after a week uh, or weeks. So how do we treat pigs uh, in the animal industry? Uh, Pigs are one of the most, um, I guess surprising things that I'd always seen with pig facilities I've been on is uh, they're kept in very tiny, confined areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think the justification is generally that you don't want the mother to roll over onto the piglets um, as they're feeding. They are... Um, pigs are pigs are one of the surprising ones because they people often talk about animal intelligence 
And for some odd reason, I've seen that people seem to want to almost be just very cruel to them. I've, I've seen people kind of kick at them. Um, I've, I, apparently there's a lot of issues with them getting a lot of electro prods and shocks. Um, and this may very well be in part due to their intelligence. Maybe they're a little bit more likely to get themselves into trouble, you know, mm-hmm. try and get through gates, try and, you know, cause a little bit of a ruckus. Um, but, you know, pigs are just, um, the most heartbreaking thing really is to see these pigs in these really tiny confined areas. Um, you know, they, they basically have to like lay down their entire lives. Um, your male breeding pigs might have a little bit more freedom to roam around, but again, they're going to try and they might cause some ruckus. So there's a little bit more limitations, but the mothers are, um, they're essentially pinned down. Um, they get very limited movement. Um, that's probably to me one of the, the most like heartbreaking things I've seen with these animals, um, especially when you consider how intelligent and inquisitive they are, they can be. Um, they're extremely curious, and I don't know how we can limit them like that. Um, yeah, smarter than a dog. I mean, yeah. Um, and I don't, I don't think necessarily that, the, that, you know, how intelligent an animal is should determine whether or not we're cruel to it. Um, not by any means, but, you know, we, you know, we, we use pigs are notoriously well known for, you know, finding truffles. Um, as you said, you know, they have well-developed noses. They're easier to train than dogs. They can do more things. It's actually kind of surprising that we don't utilize them for those abilities um and i often wonder if that's just strictly a cultural thing um you know we've been doing it for thousands of years so why change um but yeah like you said they're they're way up there past dogs a lot of times but people love their dogs yeah i I think there's a big cultural component uh associated with pigs i mean I mean, it's an insult. If someone calls you a pig, uh, it's one of the worst insults. Um, and to think that this is just an innocent creature with the intelligence of a toddler, I mean, a little toddler, um, it, it, it's quite crazy. Um, there's a, a madness associated to how um, disconnected we are to, to their uh, reality. Um Okay, let's end with sheep. Um, uh, This is from an article from uh, PETA. Uh, They say sheep sheep (laughs) are gentle, sensitive animals who are emotionally complex and highly intelligent. There's uh, Keith Kendrick, a professor of medicine at Gresham College in London, London, found that sheep can distinguish between different expressions in humans and can detect uh, changes in the faces of anxious sheep. He also discovered um, uh, that sheep recognize the faces of at least 50 other sheep and can remember uh, 50 different images for up to two years. 
And then you have Professor uh, John Webster of the University of Bristol, who found that, like humans, sheep visibly express emotions. When they experience stress or isolation, they show signs of depression, similar to those uh, that humans show by hanging their heads and avoiding positive actions. Like us, sheep experience fear when they're separated from their social groups. Uh, this one is interesting. Sheep's heart rates have been found to increase by uh, 20 beats per minute when they're unable to uh, see any members of their flock and by 84 beats per minute when approached by men and a dog. Um, sheep, um, I think the are more uh, common in uh, Europe. Uh, New Zealand also have um, um, big uh, sheep ranches. Um, so what have you uh, seen and um, what could you say about um, sheep? Yeah, so um, actually where I was spending, where I lived between probably about uh, the 2013 to 2021, um, I actually lived in an area where I had a very large amount of sheep. Mm -hmm. um, I was out near, I was just south of the Wyoming border. Um, Northern Colorado and Wyoming have a very large sheep population. Um, that's actually most of the slaughterhouses that I've been to were sheep processing facilities. Um, I'm not sure uh, how much I... Not, not to say that sheep are stupid. Um, I don't know if I would necessarily call sheep smart. Um, and maybe this is my own bias, but I've, uh, I've heard a number of people always joke that sheep are so stupid that they'd be the only animal that if they got out of their wherever they live, they would actually be able to survive in the wild because they're just, cause <laughs> uh. just that pure dumb luck. <laughs> um, but no, sheep, sheep are extremely emotional. Um, as you said, they and they certainly do become extremely fearful when they get separated. Um, this may do be in part very much so because they, they are kind of a quintessential prey animal. They don't really have a lot of defenses um, to speak of. They, uh, they're, you know, we had mountain lions where I lived and they're certainly a target of mountain lions. Um, you don't want them to get... Uh, you know, they don't want to get separated from their flock at all, especially, you know, if you have coyotes and mountain lions that that singles them out. So I think they just have that instinctual drive. They know if they're separated, they become a target. Um, there's, you know, safety in numbers. Mm. But, um, you know, I've done I've done a decent amount of sheep shearing. Um, what is shearing? Really sheep shearing. So you actually um, shave the wool off of them. Mm -hmm. Um Modern day sheep have bred and bred to the point that um, they 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 grow such excessive amounts of wool, you have to shave it. Otherwise, you can start running into um, just a number of issues: skin issues, more prone to you know bugs, um, just all sorts of things. So you shave it, and that now becomes a product that you can sell. Um, so. But natural, like sheep that live in the wild, obviously do fine without people shaving them, shearing them. Um, we have bred them to the point that they that it's now a requirement, essentially, for the health and well-being of the sheep. Um, you know, and this is the same thing with a lot of these livestock animals. Like, 
how chickens are bred to be so large. Um, cows are bred for this huge weight, you know, everything. Same thing with sheep. We push their genetics to a point that it's become unhealthy for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but sheep, sheep are absolutely fantastic animals. Um, <laughs> sometimes a little, little bit of butt heads. Um, they, they, they will run you down. They will into you. Um, but they're, they're adorable nonetheless. Um, I, I'm, I'm quite fond of sheep. Um, you know, and they're, they're very, they're treated very similarly, I think, to cows a lot of times, um, just in their general treatment. You don't, you don't brand them with a hot iron like a cow, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, they kind of, they kind of get, um, they get selected a lot of times based on their, uh, breeding abilities. Um, you know, sheep are often, sheep are one of the few livestock animals that can produce twins. So, you know, that's something you might breed on. Um, if they produce twins, you'll keep them, you keep, you know, cycling them year after year. Um, yeah, they're, <laughs> I don't really have a, much, a whole lot more to add to sheep, um, that I haven't really talked about with, uh, you know, some of the other livestock. There's a lot of overlap there, but, um, I'm not. I, I will say I don't know how I feel about the sheep being the smarter ones. <laughs> Sometimes I think it's just pure dumb luck with them. Well, but I love them. I mean, it's Peter. <laughs> yeah, it, they, they, Peter certainly has their own bias. Yes, um, I'm sure they're going to call every single animal smart. <laughs> so I'm curious, Colin. Uh, you've you've experienced a lot uh, in that industry. Um, and you're one of the few who, after that experience, decided to not only stop working for that industry, but uh, become vegan, which is, you know, a lot of vegans will say, oh, becoming vegan is, it's easy, you can do it, everyone can do it. But it's it's pretty radical in a way, you know, it, it's something that asks of you uh, a different um perspective on on the world and um taking your distance from culture and society um so what exactly made you step step away from that industry and become vegan yeah um it's really really a long uh journey i think i think the first seed that kind of got planted in my head was, um, you know, earlier I mentioned that cow that we had when I was a kid named uh, Sally. And that sort of, I think, planted in my mind. I was very, I I was having this this disconnection of, you know, why is it that I, you know, my dog sleeps in my bed and I go hang out with him and all this. And then one day I'm going to eat Sally. Mm -hmm. That kind of, and that was something I had thought about even years after Sally had eventually been sent to slaughter. and, you know, it was a very difficult thing because I always grew up, you know, I grew up hunting, I grew up fishing. Um, and even to this day, there's a lot of those skills that I still carry with me, um, even on a, uh, on a day-to-day basis. And I, I think a lot of people, you know, I could talk to and they'd be like, wait, wait, you're vegan, but you X, Y, Z, you, you know how to, you know how to fish, you know how to gut an animal, you know how, you know, this and that. Um, and it's really, really surprising. But I, in high school, you know, it eventually culminated, you know, thinking about Sally and 
learning more and more, a little bit more about animal agriculture and how much I loved animals, um, I decided to go vegetarian. Um, because I think there's, and you'll hear from a lot of vegetarians or even non-vegetarians saying, oh, I could never go vegan. Mm, bacon. I love cheese. You know, that was me. That was absolutely me. Um, you know, I recognize that there was things that were wrong with it, but you know, I, I wasn't quite, I, you know, I just thought, oh, it's just too difficult. You know, I couldn't give up my cheese, my pizza and all that. And then when I went to college, I, you know, I did my undergrad in animal science and I was learning more and more about the industry as a whole. Um, you know, as a kid, when I worked on a ranch, I had never had as much opportunity to work in like a slaughterhouse. Um, but now I had to, now I had to do, um, you know, and I remember taking like a carcass evaluation course and that course was the beginning of the week. You see the animal, you, as alive, you palpate, you know, the fat on its back, you see its muscles, you see its skin, you see all this, you give it a grade. And then at the end of the week, they slaughter it and you have the carcass and then you have to evaluate the carcass. And it was very strange seeing this animal and it's just whatever. And then the end of the week, you see it's dead carcass. And, but the thing that really, really drove me, um, kind of the very final thing was I had been working for a, um, a dairy, um, on a dairy farm. I had been working with a veterinarian, a large animal veterinarian. And we were doing, we were mostly doing animal reproduction work for cows. Um, but part of that, we also had to go do regular veterinary work. And we had this, uh, this dairy cow that, um, you know, she was, she was very, very sweet. She was, she was great. Um, but she was down on the floor and she wasn't walking legally in the United States. You can't send an animal to slaughter if it's not able to stand up on its own weight. Um, it's so essentially you have 800 pounds, a thousand pounds of wasted money, you know? So, we essentially we gave it steroids, hoping that it would get up and go on living and walking. That didn't happen. Um, we came back the next day and it was still there. And um, <clears throat> so my my boss essentially had me euthanize it. Um, and euthanasia with livestock, it's not you know a hundred dollars of you know barbiturates and chemicals and the peaceful like quiet thing you shoot it in the back of the head and I remember shooting it in the back of the head and it just it really really um it really got to me because I was sitting there you know for many years saying, you know, I wanted to help animals. I wanted to be, I really cared about animal husbandry. I really love these animals. I always consider myself an animal lover. And yet here I am doing this. Mm -hmm. I don't want to contribute this to this anymore. I don't want to give any more of my money to this, even, even if it's, you know, dairy cows, chickens, backyard eggs, any of it. Um, so from there I ended up going vegan because I just, I couldn't see myself thinking of myself as an animal lover and still contributing in this way. So, um, 
yeah, <laughs> it was it was a very very drastic change. Um, it's been certainly very interesting. You know, when I've talked to people from my past, um, you know, I'll talk to family and they're kind of very taken aback. You know, and they they just they're not aggressive against it. You know, they're not. You know, I, I don't get as much pushback as you would expect. Um, but you, but I do get a lot of the, you know, oh, I could just never do that. You know, I love bacon and cheese too much. So I try and always have just an honest, genuine conversation with them. Um, and, you know, maybe as I go, maybe, maybe I'll convert a few people along the way. Um, I always, I always try and talk to people and, and have, you know, critical discussions um, and make people, you know, have these realizations. Even even the other day, I was at work. Um, I work in a hospital now. I do very different work now. Um, but I was having a conversation with a coworker the other day, and she was saying, yeah, I think, you know, people who abuse animals, we should punish them and lock them up and have these really, really, um, you know, harsh penalties for it. And I look at her and I say, um, you do realize you're eating a ham sandwich right now, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't quite say it like that. Um, I was a little bit more diplomatic about it. But, you know, it was kind of one of those things. She sat, she's like, you know, you can kind of see your gears turning. And I think that's, that's just, I myself needed that. Um, you know, I needed to have something to trigger those gears to start turning. And I think that's just kind of, what a lot of other people are missing as well. Mm. Um, I think when people really sit down and they start critically thinking about these things, you'll start seeing more and more people going vegan or plant-based, um, which we're already seeing. Um, you know, you go into the grocery store and now you see it, a million alternatives that weren't there 20 years ago. Yes. I know um, I'm originally, originally, originally I'm from Germany. I went back to visit family recently and there's vegan options everywhere. Um, and apparently like meat, meat consumption is down 20% or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's, there's definitely a growing, you know, people are starting to realize what's going on in the industry and realizing that we don't need animal products to live. We can live perfectly fine and healthy and even better sometimes, oftentimes without these, without these products. Well, I have to say what you decided the action you decided to take is very admirable and that's what you expect from a decent human being <laughs> why do you think others who work in that industry have not jumped uh, out of the this nightmare those nightmare factories and those practices why are they still um doing what to what they're doing even though They might have, you know, slaughtered um, innocent creatures like that cow. Um, um, do you have any reflection on that? Yeah, um, I mean, ultimately, a lot of it does. Money makes the world go round. Mm. Um, I think that's a huge contributing factor. Um, as I mentioned earlier, you have, uh, you know, when I was talking about people who work in these slaughterhouses, oftentimes they are. Um, you know, without going up and asking them for, you know, legal documentation, they're often migrant workers who are oftentimes illegally here with, you know, 
you know, wrong information. These are the facilities that are choosing to employ them. The people working there are often going to, they have to make a decision. Do I feed my family with a paycheck? Do I get a paycheck? Do I feed them? Or do I work in this industry? They're often going to choose to work in this industry because they have family at home to feed. They have bills to pay. Um, and that's, these are the facilities where they can get jobs at. Um, uh, you know, I was, I was even talking about, you know, there was underage workers, 13 and 14 year old workers at the plant in Nebraska that, you know, they recently came under fire. Um, 13 and 14 year olds don't want to work a night shift at a slaughterhouse cleaning. They need money though. People need to pay bills. So they're, these, these kids are often, you know, forced into that type of thing. Um, you know, and even for a lot of the other players in the industry, um, you know, the, the regular rancher who's just raising, you know, 20 cows, he's not working in the slaughterhouse. It is a very, you know, meat is a very cultural thing, very, very ingrained in our society. Um, so it's very, very hard for people to give up that aspect of their life. Um, even for me personally, like I think about like fish and hunting, you know, that's, I love fishing. Um, I loved going out with my buddies on, you know, the canoe and we would sit out there and fish and, you know, have a great time. And it was just awesome. And, you know, but that is an activity like I do miss. It's not even, it's not the eating the fish. It's just an activity I miss. It was so you know, part of my culture and just part of who I am. Um, even to this day, you know, I, I still, you know, I don't hunt, but I still go and um, I end up, I, I still do like long range rifle shooting. And I'll oftentimes talk with some of these people who do hunt and you can tell that them going and taking their son hunting, that's a bonding experience that they have. You know, their dads took them hunting, so they want to take their sons hunting it's just a very cultural thing um, to them. And it's very, very hard for them to break those habits. But, you know, as I said, it's a slow process. You're seeing more and more people moving away from animal agriculture and eating animals to plant-based diets, but it's going to take time. Um, and I, I do see that the I do believe that the animal agriculture industry is going to start shrinking significantly um, in the future. Hopefully, hopefully, and right. and I'm so happy that you exist and that you <laughs> share your experience so openly. I think it's important to hear from people who not only you know have seen those because that's one thing to watch a movie like Dominion. Um, but it's another to talk to someone who has actual experience backing up, uh, who can say, you know, um, I've witnessed that. I know that this is happening and this is real. And not only that, but you've made changes, uh, radical changes in your life uh, to align with your uh, ethical beliefs. Um, again, it's very admirable. Uh, did you have something to add before we end this conversation? No, I know uh, we, we probably went a little bit over the time. Yes. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I would definitely, for the viewers of this that, um, you know, aren't vegan or, or 
considering going vegan, um, you know, I, I would certainly encourage them to to look into it and, and realize that, you know, people say it's an extremely difficult thing. And it's not to say that there aren't difficulties with, with it. You know, it will certainly impact, you know, your social life to some degree. You know, all your friends go out to eat a pizza and, oh, there's nothing for the vegan to eat. You know, you're, you will get, you know, my best friend even. He drives me up the wall. He tells me all the time, Colin, you should stop being vegan. And, you know, we, we have a back and forth and, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things. But don't let those discourage you. Um, it is, it's becoming easier. The world is going vegan. Um, even, even just everywhere in the world. Um, I've been on vacation, you know, I, I was in Europe recently. And like I said, you can go to any major city and you can eat vegan and find it. It's accessible. It's there. You know, you might have to do a little bit of looking, but it's not as difficult as people think it is. Um, and you know, you're not supporting this industry that is unnecessarily killing and torturing animals, essentially. Um, you know, I definitely encourage people to I give it a try. I completely agree. Give it a try. And, you know, there are more advantages than uh, um, some, some vegans talk about health benefits. I, I'm not into that whole, you know, health stuff. But um, in terms of just having uh, a clear conscience and maybe even in a spiritual way, um, it, it feels good to, to do this, to know that uh, just by being vegan, you're doing something positive uh, on this earth and you're doing something good. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's a great feeling, truly a great feeling. And if you try it and you make a mistake, don't get discouraged. You know, it's, um, you know, sometimes I find out the other day, like, there's a lot of toilet paper that apparently uses gelatin. Mm -hmm. um, you're going you're gonna to run into those type of issues. Um, it's very frustrating, but it makes you, but it makes you more aware of what you're consuming in general. Um, and you do, you do very, you do feel better about what it is, you know, and, you know, just make sure you vary your diet. Don't just eat Oreos and bananas the whole time, you know, actually mix it up. And you're going to, you're going to find that the vegan food's a lot better than people give it credit for. Mm. Um, there's a lot of people like, oh, that's nasty and bland. It's like, no, I've actually like really opened up <laughs> my experience with food um, because I'm willing to step out and try new things. Um, yeah. People can message yeah. me. I will send them some recipes. Uh, it would be my pleasure and yes yeah again i agree with you there this is don't be dogmatic i mean even if you reduce uh your consumption of meat you're making a difference uh, so yeah think about what you can do so again thank you very much colin for uh having answered my question and having been uh, a guest on this podcast Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, perfect timing. I'm at 3% battery on my laptop. So. <laughs> perfect timing. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope that Colin's journey from 
working for the animal industry to becoming vegan has inspired you, please share this conversation with family and friends and raise awareness on this damaging industry. I think you are going to be excited for next week's episode. I'm going to launch an ongoing series on this podcast called Vegan Veterans, where you will hear me talk with ordinary people who have been vegan for a long time, starting with Justin, who discovered veganism through the punk rock scene and became vegan during the 1990s. I want to understand what makes someone adopt and sustain such radical changes in their life, and why so many vegans stop being vegan only after a few months. If you like this podcast, take the time to leave a good review. I'm also on Instagram if you want to reach out at Vegan Report Podcast. Thank you again for listening. Take care and see you next week.